with COVID-19 still firmly gripping many communities, the next decade will see a number of major crises impacting the world's economy. PwC Global Leader for Strategy and Leadership, Blair Shepard, discusses with PwC Managing Partner of Client and Markets, Julie Coates, why 2021 must be the year the world unites. Good morning, good evening, and welcome. I'm joined today by our global leader for strategy and leadership, Blair Shepard, who's joining us live from the US. Good, good morning, Blair. Well, good afternoon, actually, and it's a thrill to be talking to you from uh, North Carolina. Thank you, Blair. And Blair has, um, has put pen to paper and written a book, and the book is called 10 Years to Midnight. So we're gonna start by asking Blair, what was his inspiration? What was really happening and what process did he go through to land on the key themes that come through in his book, 10 Years to Midnight? Well, it actually started harmlessly, right? We were just trying to figure out whether our strategy was robust to the crazy things going on in the world. So we interviewed people in 60 countries all over the world and, um, and asked them simple questions, which is, what are you worried about? Same things came up again and again and again and again. And because of the consistency, we said, maybe we better research it. And so we went deeply and dove into data in 14 countries, Australia being one of them. And, um, and the pattern that resulted in the book came up. And all, all 14 countries, exactly the same pattern. And so we knew there was something to write about. Actually, it... It got me kind of worried, and so I felt if I could write, I could get rid of some of the stress that was sitting as a result of the results. So Blair, maybe you could just talk to us at a high level about the four main concepts um, that you talk about in the book. So there are four crises. They're all the same. They, um, they are um, systemic, broadly determined. They're bad now, bad next year, and they get worse 10 years from now. The first one is the crisis of prosperity. Um, where, where people from across the lifespan have uh, an unattractive looking future and therefore guess, kind of kind of give up. Second one is the impact of technology, ubiquitous technology on our lives, both the industrial system and the way we're talking to each other. The third is, uh, is lack of trust in institutions and a growing sense of they're not working for us. And the final one is kind of a derivative crisis, which is we don't have the leaders we need to actually um, help address the first three. But, but, but the interesting thing is uh, that clearly COVID has had some terrible consequences itself, but what it did probably even more important than that is, is exacerbate each of these uh, deeper crises. So they, they got worse. So the disparity is, grow, is worse. People have a less attractive future. So crisis prosperity is worse. The, we, we, we went to this medium to, to do business overnight. And so the technology crisis is worse. We have a little bit of a break from the technology-based climate crisis for a few months, but actually I think we're more aware of the challenges and therefore it's more extreme. And a lot of institutional distrust was uh, was created. And, and clearly in some places in the world, leaders didn't step up, so we showed the liability. So in many ways it got worse. So I have a colleague who said to me, Blair, shouldn't you rewrite this book as eight years to midnight or seven years to midnight? And, uh, and they may be right. And you mentioned Australia as being one of the countries so what are the good yes. What are some of the examples um, that you see of how the crisis and solutions are going to play out in Australia? Well, I mean the crises are pretty similar everywhere. So if you think about the the crisis of technology, um, you know the the fires in Australia are the same as the fires in Brazil and the fires in uh, in California and the fires in Southeast Asia. 
and, and actually even in Russia and northern Canada. And so what you have is a pattern that looks like the following, which is um, it's a problem now. It's worse next year. It will be worse the year after. It's systemic, so it's caused by a lot of things. And if we don't deal with it in 10 years, it goes really, really dark. So just so take the fires in Australia. They were bad last year, worse this year. They'll probably be worse next year. And, and the data coming out of Oregon shows that if you, if you do it again and again and again, the ecosystem just doesn't replace itself. Um, yeah. And then the other piece is that at the same time the lungs are, are being destroyed with the forest fires and the coral off of the Australian coast, the country I grew up in, Canada, because of the long, hot summers in northern Canada, it's releasing methane, which is 10 times more, 10 to 30 times more powerful than CO2. And so just when the world's lungs are dying, we're releasing a much more efficient heat capture gas. That happens a decade from now, and it's very hard to turn it around. So all the problems are exactly that same pattern. Which is a bit daunting um, to think about. And so, and so if I think about the banks and the financial services institutions, what sort of role are they going to be able to play um, in responding to some of these trends? So I think they're central. Um, so let's do insurance first and then come back to banking, right? So insurance, we're going to have to insure completely different things. Um, we're going to have to understand risk in a completely different way, and we're going to have to help manage those risks. And if you think about the asset management side, they've got to think completely different about how they invest in assets. So for example, the... Um, the degree to which the firms are dealing with the crises actually will um, will influence their value in a very short period of time. It's quite material. So we go to banking, um, we're going to have to think about the risks that are associated with these crises for each of the uh, people we're, we're lending money to and supporting from a corporate standpoint. They're going to have to worry about asset management again on the bank side. And then right in the middle, they're going to have to worry about how they manage themselves with all of these crises in mind. So you don't want to be a bank who's laying people off at a time when the country simply is unhappy about disparity. You don't want to be a bank who actually is contributing to uh, carbon production yourself. You don't want to be an institution that's distrusted. Um, and, and so I think across the entire breadth of financial services, there's uh, real work to be done. And, and that trust building comes through really strongly um, in the book. And in Australia, we've gone through um, a Royal Commission, which was a real challenge for our financial services institutions. And I think through COVID-19, we've probably had the opportunity to start to rebuild some of that trust. So I think that trust message will definitely resonate really strongly. And, and one of the other big concepts that comes through your book is leadership um, and the different types of leaders that we're going to need if we're going to be able to respond in the right way to the crises. So can you explain a little bit more about those sort of paradoxes of leadership? If you think about it, the crises are really, really big and really, really urgent, and they've got to happen fast, right? So those two things feel at odds. And so what we need is a leader who actually can deal with uh, things that seem inherently paradoxical at odds with each other. So, so think about the person you admired most during COVID. And I'm willing to bet they had the following characteristic, right? They were humble, knew they didn't know the answer. So they sought input from doctors, from epidemiologists, from um, business people, from economists, from leaders in civil society, probably even from psychologists and sociologists about how to solve the problem. And, and when they got all that input, I guarantee they had no idea what the right answer was because no one did at the time. But they had the courage to take a decision anyway, knowing they were gonna be lambasted for the decision and criticized because doing nothing was, was worse than, um, than, than taking a decision was only partially correct. 
say they were incredibly humble, but unbelievably heroic. I think that's right. It's a new way for us to think about it. And in terms of the policymakers and governments, how can they really step up into this then? Because there are gaps that they need to step into. So what's our advice to them? So a couple things, actually. One of them is that, is that um, the answers are probably in business as much as they are in government. So it has to be a partnership. We've got to get business engaged. And, and actually, shareholders are really aware of these issues. And so for kind of the first time in a while, the kind of moral imperative and business imperative are the same for shareholders. So, so, so let the private sector be part of the answer. Second one is um, you probably don't have all the capability in yourself as a leader, and so surround yourself with people that aren't you. It, the interesting thing about the paradox is we tend to be really good at the thing that we like and we're interested in and, and we care about. And so hire the person who does the thing you hate and really respect that. That's, a, that's an unusual thing for us to ask, but actually we have to surround ourselves with people not like ourselves. And uh, if we do that, we'll probably fill the gaps because it'll be that person who has the thing we don't have. Yeah, and basically you're describing, you know, diversity and inclusion, right? Yes, exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, and so one of the things you said at the start was it is a bleak picture that you're describing in the book, um, but the good news is we've got 10 years to fix ourselves. So how should our younger generations position themselves to become able and willing and have a role in fixing what the future needs to look like and bring us back from the potential crises that we're entering into? So how are we thinking about that? So one of the things I worry about the crisis of prosperity, Julie, is that, um, is that for an awful lot of the people graduating from college who come out with debt, who are coming into a terrible job market, probably not all that well paid, looking at everybody able to afford a house, and then the massive debt that we've given them, they, they could actually kind of despair and actually not try to fix the future. And, and I really worry about that. And so my, my request is, please, please don't despair and look for hope. And a couple of things about that. First of all is point the finger at those of us who are old and cause these problems and say, you're going to go down as remembered as the world's worst generation unless you do something about this. So get to it, you guys. Right? And, then, and then help us. And the second one is we're going to need millions of people involved to solve these issues. So find a place you love and make it better and find a problem you care about and work on it. Um, and and uh, if you hold us to account and you get engaged, then... Um, Maybe two, uh, seven or eight years from now, we'll have written a book about Finding Dawn. <laughs> yes, we look forward to that one. Some great messages. Blair, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. And um, for those of you out there who haven't already read the book, I encourage you to do so. And as Blair said, the, the clock is ticking, so we have 10 years to go. Blair, thank you. Thanks, Julie. I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, good luck with the hot summers in Australia. Thank you for listening to Blue Notes. This podcast was produced by the Blue Notes editorial team with music by Kevin McLeod. Blue Notes is a publication of ANZ Banking Group.